0: and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> Today, we uh, continue our series in the book of Philippians, which is a letter that Apostle Paul wrote to a church at Philippi, a church he had planted himself and church he loves. This is in many ways a letter of thanks. The church at Philippi is a supporting church, and they've supported Paul and his ministry, and even as he is in prison, they've sent him a gift. And this is what he's referring to in our text. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Well, the opportunity presented itself when Epaphroditus was able to come to Rome and present the gift, the financial gift, from the church at Philippi to the apostle. And that gift enabled him to have food and clothing and those kinds of things while he was in prison. Uh, Roman prisons, much like Ukrainian hospitals, uh, don't provide food or medicine or anything else for you. You have to find it yourself. And so Paul had to rely on the support of his friends to provide for his needs. And this is what happened. So this letter is a letter of gratitude for this church who supported him. And he's already addressed such big themes as joy, which is the central theme of the letter, peace, we talked about it last week, and now he's writing about contentment. <clears throat> Isn't it remarkable that a man in prison for preaching the gospel, writing to a church persecuted for their faith, is talking about contentment and peace and joy. Maybe, just maybe, there is a lesson for the contemporary church here in these verses for us. But at any rate, when Paul talks about peace and joy and contentment, he's talking about different aspects of the same state, or state of being in Christ, It's our conscious experience of our union with Christ, our relationship with Christ, that produces things like joy and peace and contentment and unity among believers, courage and persecution, and so on. So we'll be looking at contentment this morning from the same perspective as connected to our relationship with Christ. Now, Paul refers to contentment as a secret or mystery that he has learned and that he would like us to learn As well. So here's our outline for today. We're first, we'll look at why contentment is a secret. Let's consider why he calls it a secret. Secondly, let's explore how we can learn the secret of contentment. What are the circumstances under which we can learn this mystery, this secret? And third, we'll discover what the secret of contentment is. So, first, why contentment is a secret, second, how we can learn the secret of contentment, and third, let's discover what the secret actually is. And if you're here in person or online and and you're not a believer, maybe you're skeptical, maybe you're interested and, and intrigued by Christianity, I just want to welcome you to this conversation. I want to encourage you to listen to these truths from Scripture and evaluate them. Evaluate them based on your experience, on the witness of other people, on how well it fits into reality. I I just really encourage you to come to it with an open mind. And for some of us who've been in the church for many years, these things that I will say will probably sound like familiar beats. You know, we've we've talked about it a lot. But if you're from outside, and we're thrilled that, that you're able to join us this morning, these may be new things to you. So embrace them as possibilities for your life and see if they fit, see if they work. And I think they do. So let's talk about the secret of contentment. Why does Paul call it a secret? He says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And he's using, he's using this, this idea of, of learning something, of discovering something, of, of a mystery, of some sort of a secret that he has uh, un, unraveled. Now, contentment, and he's using this very particular term of secret of contentment, contentment was a common topic of discussion in the time of the Philippian church. In fact, many philosophers, specifically the Stoics, talked a lot about contentment. In fact, for the Stoics, this was the ultimate goal of the philosophers, to achieve contentment, to be above your circumstances, to live in a way that was self-sufficient, independent, living above need and abundance, being free from worry, being not disturbed by your circumstances, nor finding happiness in your circumstances. This was a common idea of the day, and Paul is using this term, and he says this is a secret. And of course, the Stoics would agree. It is a secret that only few of us, only few philosophers that have advanced on this way are able to uncover and understand and practice It's a secret because for the vast majority of us, it remains unknown. For most people, in the time of the Philippians, in the time of Paul, and in our own culture, it's a secret, it's a mystery. We don't know how to be content. Not really all that different today, is it? We live in a culture that, on the one hand, prizes contentment, just like the Stoics of the Philippians. We prize contentment, serenity, happiness, self-sufficiency, peace. Those are all the things that most of us in this culture will say, we want that. And in fact, it's marketed to us. But on the other hand, we live in a culture that lives in the grip of envy and greed and disappointment, ingratitude and bitterness. Just like in the days of the Stoics, contentment in our time Remains a secret for many. We're not a happy culture. Let's just, can we just admit that? (laughs) That We may pretend we're happy, but we're not really happy as a culture. We're not happy with the color of our teeth, the shape of our bodies, thickness of our hair, smoothness of our skin, and the density of our bones. The Wi Fi is typically too slow. Thank you that we're learning this and accepting it together, yeah. (laughs) The screen is typically too small. The wait is typically too long. The house is too old. The taxes are too high. The week is too busy. And the weekend is too boring. We complain about everything, don't we? Complain about politics. We complain about sports. We complain about health. We complain about the weather. We complain about shapes and colors and textures. It doesn't matter what it is. We're not happy. So we'll find reasons to, to be not happy and to complain about. And yet, this is what's interesting about our culture. And I, I'm assuming it was the same in the, in the Philippian culture, and I'm assuming it's the same probably in most cultures. The degree may vary, but I think we all as human beings wrestle with this, this dynamic, that We're not happy, but we feel as if contentment is just around the corner. We're just so close to being content and to being happy. We're continually, in our culture today, offered products and experiences that will finally, they promise to finally usher us into the secret of contentment. Have you noticed how many commercials contain images of serenity and peace? doesn't actually matter what the product is, but it's often presented with this image of peace and calm and serenity and contentment and happiness. Why, why, why are we so drawn to that? We're drawn to that because we feel like contentment is within our grasp in some way. It's just, it's just we just need a little bit more. We just need to un- unlock this secret. We just need to figure this out, and then finally... We will be content. But how many of us can honestly say that we are happy or that we are content? Not many, some, but not many. I find it interesting that this dynamic of being unhappy and yet wanting contentment, feeling disappointed and yet feeling like it's just, I'm just one step away from being content. It's, it's evident, I think, to any observer of our culture. So for example, if you look at almost any feed on social media, it will be interspersed with pictures of beautiful landscapes. Almost everybody does that. And at the same time, hateful memes. Now how can it be that we say we want that, we want the beauty, we want the peace and the calm of that, the serenity of nature? And yet, we're all participating in in creating discontentment and unhappiness. Now, this is the human condition. This is the sinful human condition that we want contentment, and yet it seems unattainable to us, even though we keep grasping for it. So that's why I think Paul says it's a secret. It's something that has to be learned. It's something that has to be discovered. We don't know what it is. We are struggling with contentment. We're trying to do it in different ways, and it doesn't seem to work. So how can we learn contentment, according to Paul? Well, look at verses 11 and 12. Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, as any good commentary will tell you, Paul is using here another term that was familiar in the culture of his day. When he says, I have learned the secret, it can easily be translated as, I have been initiated into the sacred mysteries. The apostle is using the terminology of the ancient mystery religion. The adherents of such a religion believed that secret knowledge can be acquired by going through the various sacred rites and ceremonies to be initiated into this, this secret knowledge. With each rite passed, with each ceremony complete, the follower would be welcomed into the next level of knowledge and privilege. Now, you can think, this is not a one-to-one analogy, but you can think of the modern-day Masons or Scientology as sort of the mystery religions of our day. You don't really know what's going on until you enter into that community. You don't really know what they're doing when they're, ga- when they're gathering until you're part of it. And in fact, even then, there's always the next level. You need to be initiated into another secret knowledge, another idea, something that's only available to, to the select few. So it's interesting that Paul is using that concept, that idea, of saying that that contentment is not just a secret somebody can tell you and you say, oh, okay, I got it, I'm content. He's saying you have to go through experiences. You have to go through rites and ceremonies and be initiated into the secret. It's a mystery that is learned through experience. It's not so much something that you need to learn intellectually. You need to learn it by living, by going through certain experiences. One commentator put it this way, it is as as if Paul were saying, I have been initiated into all the mysteries of life. I know the secrets of everyday reality. God has taught me through good times and bad how to cope not only with hunger and privation, but with plenty to eat and an abundance of wealth. Paul's experiences of both abundance and need, of facing plenty and hunger, both of those allowed him to learn the secret of contentment. Now, this is crucial for us to understand, that we learn contentment not only in poverty, but also in prosperity. Both states become initiation rites into the secret of contentment. You see, most people, this is how we typically think, We try to learn contentment when we lack something. Something is taken away from us, we say, okay, now I'm going to be content. But Paul is saying that as much as we need to learn that, we also need to learn to be content with something and somehow live in content life when you have plenty, when you are prosperous. Each state, prosperity and poverty, presents us with distinct temptations for discontentment. In other words... You're not only dealing with discontentment when you're poor, when you lack something, when you're sick, when something is broken down in your life. You're also dealing with discontentment when you're prosperous, when you have plenty, when you're not hungry. Now look, look with me at Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9. I really like this passage. Proverbs 30, 8 and 9. It says, Give me, it's a prayer to God, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So in other words, there are dangers in abundance and there are dangers in need. In abundance, the danger is that we become disconnected from God because we feel that we don't need him. We can forget him and live a dependence independence on our possessions and our health and our comfort. Now, of course, some would say, well, you don't need to remember God to be content. If you prosper, if you live in abundance, you have plenty of everything you need, then you will be content. And it's a popular idea that to be content is to have plenty. However, as I've already shown, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. We are a culture of discontent, and yet we're one of the most prosperous and most advanced cultures in human history. So this argument doesn't work in experience. And what Paul is saying is that you have to learn to be content in abundance. It doesn't happen naturally. You have to discover the secret of contentment when you have plenty. Most people are not content in that state. And likewise, in poverty, the same way, we have to discover how to be content in poverty. It doesn't happen naturally. It's not like people say, well, if I don't have money, I don't have to worry about money, right? It's not like that. It doesn't naturally come that way. You have to learn it. You have to go through those experiences to become content. So in abundance, there are problems. In poverty, there's another danger. There's a danger of cursing God and rejecting His way of life. In abundance, we forget God, but in poverty and in need, we blame God. Either way, we're not content, and either way, we have to figure out how to be content in both of those states. And so according to Paul, contentment is learned by trusting God both in need and in abundance. Both. And in both states, you're learning to be content. Paul says that contentment is lifts you up above your circumstances. So we would say, I'm not, I'm not content because of my circumstances. I might be content in spite of my circumstances. But each experience, each circumstance in your life, actually is an opportunity to learn contentment. In abundance, we need to learn not to seek contentment in our abundance. But in need, we need to learn not to seek abundance to achieve contentment. In abundance, we learn that God is still the source, that He is still the giver. And so we learn to stay dependent on Him even when it seems that we don't need Him. It's a specific skill and a spiritual spiritual skill that you learn in abundance only. You can't learn that in poverty. In abundance, we must learn that we need God and that we depend on Him just as much as we depend on Him in a season of need. It's actually the same. You still depend on God in exactly the same way. You're just fooled into thinking that you don't need God in abundance. In abundance, we learn humility and gratitude. Those are valuable things to learn in abundance. In want, we learn we must learn patience and trust. We learn that the God who can bless us with prosperity is the same God that allows our poverty. And because we trust Him, we we can experience calm in adversity. My point here, and Paul's point in in the text, is that the way we learn the secret is by going through these experiences of abundance and need. And in each experience, we're learning how to be content. So my question is, are you learning? Are you actually intentionally learning contentment in whatever situation that you are in? Are you intentionally using this time to understand the mystery of contentment? Have you forgotten God in your prosperity? Are you just trying to get through this season of need without actually really considering what God is teaching you? The Christian who wants to be content, like the Apostle Paul, will intentionally use their circumstances to learn contentment. Are you doing that? Or have you settled into the state of permanent discontent? Now, what's interesting to me is that churches see their attendance shift and people's commitment change both in times of prosperity and in times of crisis and need. Now, we are more in the time of crisis and need, although it's all relevant, of course, right now. And yes, we're seeing, of course, churches are seeing certain people just drift away because they feel that they're so needy that God hasn't come through for them and they don't need God anymore. So that's the scenario from from Proverbs 30 where you profane God's name, where you do something against His will and you actually remove yourself from the source of all contentment. And likewise, in times of prosperity, you see many people say, why why am I going to church? Why do I need God? My life is fine. I'm, I'm healthy. I'm comfortable. I have enough money. And so you see people drift away there too. But the secret of contentment is to be content in either state and to learn contentment through each experience and that's what Paul did Paul had certainly times of great suffering and right now he's in prison here and he's suffering he's depending on on the generosity of others to survive and yet he's also had times when he was prosperous when he had enough to eat when he was staying in in wealthy houses of Christians when he was provided much to do his ministry and he says in every circumstance I have learned I've intentionally learned how to be content so are you doing that Am I doing that? And now, what is the secret of contentment? I'm hinting at things as I go along, but I'm going to reveal it to you now, okay? Paul reveals the secret to us, and so I will as well. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him, uh, through him who strengthens me. That's the secret. Christ is the secret. Jesus Christ is the hymn in this verse, and Jesus Christ is the secret of contentment. The Stoics, you see, they taught that contentment is achieved by becoming self-sufficient and self-dependent. It was contentment from within. The Stoics wanted to empty their hearts of all desire, all care, all love, and thus be content in any circumstance. In other words, if I just don't care about anything, right, I won't care about what I have or don't have. It just will not matter to me. That was the stoic way. But Paul's idea of contentment is very, very different. Instead of self-sufficiency, Paul teaches Christ-sufficiency. It's very different. Instead of self-dependence, he teaches Christ-dependence. Instead of emptying the heart of all our cares and desires and loves. Paul teaches us to fill our hearts with Christ, with His love, with His glory, with His presence. The Bible teaches that contentment doesn't actually come from within ourselves, but it comes from without. It comes from Christ Himself entering our life and staying in our life. This is why I talk so much about staying connected to God during prosperity or need. Because we're not Stoics. We are Christians. This is very different. Even though Paul is using similar language, similar terminology, what he's actually doing is he's he's, he's welcoming a culture that understands something to come into the conversation, and then he will transform the conversation and completely change the meaning of those terms. But we can't confuse the two. Stoicism and Christianity are very different. Contentment is not keeping the stiff upper lip in adversity and refusing to enjoy anything nice in prosperity. That is Stoicism. So when you see a Christian doing that, you have to rebuke them. And you have to say, we are not Stoics. We are Christian. We are not expelling passion out of our hearts. We're not doing that so we wouldn't get hurt. What we're doing is we're filling our hearts with the right kind of passion. And we are emotionally engaged, and we are intellectually engaged, and we are enjoying things that God has given us. And yet at the same time, we are not weeping when things are taken away from us because we have learned contentment both in the time of need and in the time of abundance. We can handle both as Christians but we're not doing that by, by lowering our emotional commitment or lowering our, our attachment to something. In fact, we're increasing our attachment. We're increasing our commitment to the right things. Now, this is how it works. Listen to Gordon Fee, one of the commentators uh, for this passage. He says, This passage is not an expression of Stoicism, not even a Christianized version of the Stoic ideal. Rather... It is but another of scores of such passages that indicate the absolute Christ-centeredness of Paul's whole life. He is a man in Christ. As such, he takes what Christ brings. If it means plenty, he is a man in Christ, and that alone. If it means want, he is a man in Christ, and he accepts deprivation as part of his discipleship. christ is the secret to our contentment. It's our union with Christ. It's our relationship with Christ. It's our connection to Christ in the midst of prosperity and in the midst of need that actually transforms us into people who are content. In verse 13, it says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, you can also translate it very easily. I can do things in him who strengthens me. It's the same word in Greek, through or in. And I think Paul probably means this fuller meaning of this. I'm not just doing things through Christ, as in with His help, with His strength. Now that's true. But I'm also doing things in Christ, within my relationship with Him, in the context of who I am in Christ, within His presence in my life. That's the secret. He is the secret. Our contentment does not depend on circumstances, but it depends on our conscious experience of our union with Jesus Christ. So for a Christian, as Paul told us already earlier in the letter, to live is Christ. It is incredibly true for a Christian to say that. To live is Christ. My whole life is bound up in Christ. And so to be content then is to experience life circumstances in Christ, and through Christ, and with Christ. That's Christian contentment. Listen to this commentator. He says, The secret of Paul's independence was his dependence upon another. His self-sufficiency, in reality, came from being in vital union with one who is all sufficient. So when you quote Philippians 4:13, this is what it means. It's a popular verse, everybody quotes it, everybody's memorized it, and yet so many of us don't understand what it means, and we misquote and misapply this verse. Let me give you an example. It will make sense as I go into this analogy, okay, this illustration. Evander the Real Deal Holyfield guaranteed that he would beat Mike Tyson on November 9th, 1996. I remember that fight. I don't know if you remember. They were, these two fighters had a long road to finally meeting and they finally met. It was actually marketed as finally. That bout was finally there. And so Holyfield, who is a professed born-again believer, said, I will beat Mike Tyson. And he showed up to the fight, entered the ring that night wearing a purple robe with the inscription, Philippians 4:13, on it. Now Tyson, of course, was the reigning heavyweight champion. Holyfield was considered an underdog. But Holyfield believed that he could beat Tyson because Christ was on his side. Christ was giving him strength. And so he can do all things, including beating the reigning champion. His confidence was influenced not only by the verse he embroidered on his purple robe, but also by the fact that Tyson had converted to Islam in prison. So now this was a clash of religions, a clash of World views, a clash of allegiances. And surely, the person who was trusting that Christ will give him strength will win. For Holyfield, as for many Christians, Philippians 4.13 meant, I can do anything I decide to. I can overcome any obstacle in my way. I can beat any opponent. I can achieve any goal because Christ strengthens me. Now, he did win, let me point out. And we can spin this story, certainly, as Christ empowering him to beat this unbelieving Mike Tyson. It didn't help that Tyson was losing his prowess. He wasn't in the right shape to fight him. And then in the future fights, he showed that he was not as worthy of an opponent as we had thought at the time. Now you may remember the second bout where Tyson resorted to biting Holyfield's ears off to try to win that fight. I'm bringing this up because often we as Christians come to a problem and we put on our purple robe with Philippians 3, 4.13 on it, and we say, I can do all things through Christ. I will solve that problem. God will give me victory here. I'll overcome this obstacle. I will beat this opponent. And so a Christian student goes into the test without having prepared for it and says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or a Christian businessman goes into a deal and says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and I will close this deal and make a lot of money. Or a Christian goes into the doctor's office and says, this doctor will tell me that cancer is gone because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you see how this verse is often misused and misquoted? We take it to mean that whatever goal I set for myself, whatever my desired outcome is, Christ will get me there. It's using Christ to achieve what you want to achieve. But look at the context. What does this verse actually mean here? Let's understand verses in context. What does it say? The context is contentment, isn't it? Paul says, I've learned to be content in need and in abundance and hunger and face and plenty. I know how to be content because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What are the all things he's talking about? Winning boxing matches? acing tests, beating cancer? I don't think so. He's saying that whatever the circumstances, I can do all things, win or lose, beat cancer or die of cancer, pass a test or fail a test, make money or lose money through Christ who strengthens me. What he's saying is that I can be content in any circumstance because of Jesus. What Holyfield should have said, I'm going into it. I'm going to give it my all. If I win, I will give glory to God. And if I lose, I will still give glory to God because I will be okay. I will be content whether I win or lose this fight. Philippians 4.13 means I can handle victory or defeat. Prosperity, or poverty, through, in, and with Christ. Because I know the secret of contentment. I know Christ. So I can get in the ring. I can enter the doctor's office. I can take that test. I can make that call. And I can be content with whatever circumstances God, in His wisdom, allows to happen in my life. Now, just so you don't think uh, it's just my ideas here, okay? We see it all over the Scriptures, Queen Esther, do you remember Queen Esther? When she goes into the king, and she knows that the king can put her to death because she's not supposed to appear before the king, unannounced or unsummoned. But she also knows that she has to plead for the salvation of her people. So she goes to the king, and this is what she says, Esther 4.16, she says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She's saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If I win, if God chooses to use me here to save his people, I am there. I am courageous enough to do it. But if I perish, I perish. I will still be content with that outcome as well. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do you remember those people from the book of Daniel? They were confronted with the king's command to worship his idol. Or if they didn't, they would be thrown into the furnace, put to death. And so they said, this is Daniel 3, 17 and 18, they said, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They're saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can, I can overcome this adversity and be miraculously saved out of the furnace, which is what actually happened. I can win that fight against Tyson. Or I can be put to death in this, in this furnace, and still I will not worship any other God. So for us, in our circumstances, Philippians 4.13 does not promise that I will not get covid because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what it means. So don't go into a situation and saying, I don't need to do anything about this COVID thing because I can do all things through God, through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what it means. What it means is that whether you do get COVID or you don't get COVID, either way, Christ will be there and he will strengthen you and you can be content in it. Whether you are in quarantine like some some people in nursing homes that have been in quarantine for weeks on their own, Christians holding on to Christ in that loneliness, in that isolation. They can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. Or those of us who are free to move and have very few limitations on our lives. We too can be content with this. The Stoics were right. You see that contentment is a matter of desire. It is a matter of love. And so their solution was, let's just banish all passion. Let's banish all desire and love from our hearts and achieve contentment that way. Let's just not care. But Christianity, affirming that contentment is a matter of love, seeks to fill our lives with the love of Christ, make us passionate for Him, make us desire Him above all other loves. And so contentment is not about abolishing all love and all desire. It is about seeing the love of Christ as more important than all other loves. Let me give you an example. Think about a newly married couple that is delighted, thrilled to live in a run-down studio apartment eating ramen for dinner. Most of us have been there. Why? Why there's such contentment in that home? Because they have each other, you see. They've experienced a certain kind of love that expels all other necessities. And they realize that, hey, as long as we love each other, it's okay if we eat ramen, it's okay if we don't have enough space. What's the big deal? We have what we need. We have the most important thing for us. Now, that same couple makes more money later in life. They buy a bigger house. They eat better meals. And they should be just as content as they were before because now they're sharing that richness with each other. And they're saying, sure, these are great things for us to enjoy, but we still have each other. On the other side of that, if that marriage isn't doing well, you know, right, the house doesn't matter. The food doesn't matter because you don't have that. You don't have what sustains you in that apartment early on in life. This is how it works. If we prioritize love of Christ to us, our love for Him, other things become not as significant. We can enjoy them while we have them. We can also live happily and contented lives when we don't have them. Jeremiah Burroughs was a Puritan who wrote a book on contentment. He called it the rare jewel of Christian contentment. This is what he said. He said, before, before conversion, before Christ, the soul sought after this and that, but now it says, I see that it is not necessary for me to be rich, but it is necessary for me to make my peace with God. It is not necessary that I should live a pleasurable life in this world, but it is absolutely necessary that I should have pardon for my sin. It is not necessary that I should have honor and preferment, But it is necessary that I should have God as my portion and have my part in Jesus Christ. It is necessary that my soul should be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. The other things are pretty fine indeed, and I should be glad if God would give them to me. A fine house, an income, and clothes, and advancement for my wife and children. These are comfortable things, but they are not the necessary things. I may have these and yet perish forever. But the other is absolutely necessary. No matter how poor I am, I may have what is absolutely necessary. Thus Christ instructs my soul. And so a Christian, knowing that he has Christ, and that Christ is his forever, and that Christ is present in every circumstance, can actually be content. The Christ who out of his love for us came to become like us, And live among us. The Christ who hungered in the wilderness for us. The Christ who was tempted by the devil for us. The Christ who was poor and homeless for us. The Christ who suffered and died for our sins. The Christ who rose for our forgiveness, our justification. Who ascended to intercede for us and is coming again all because he loves us. This Christ promises to be with us and give us strength. And so if we know that Christ, if we know the secret of contentment, if we know Him, we have a relationship with Him, we know how much He loves us, we love Him, we can be content in our hunger, in our suffering, in our temptation, in our poverty, and even our death through Christ who strengthens us. And so with the psalmist we can say, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Legend has it that a wealthy merchant heard about the apostle, Apostle Paul in prison in Rome and came to visit him. When he entered the cell, he was surprised to find Paul looking old and frail. And at the same time, The merchant was impressed with the strength and peace of the apostle. They talked for a while, and finally the merchant left. Outside the cell, he asked one of Paul's friends, maybe Timothy or someone like that, what is the secret of this man's power and peace and serenity and contentment? I've never seen anything like it before. And the friend said, Paul is in love. The merchant was puzzled. In love? Yes, Paul is in love with Jesus Christ. The merchant was even more confused. Is that all? The friend smiled and said, that is everything. Now you know, now you know the secret of contentment. It is Jesus himself. It's a relationship with him. But it's not enough to know Just like Paul says, we have to learn that secret and you learn it by walking with Christ through your abundance, through your suffering, through your need. And if you do that intentionally, if you do that consciously, aware of what you have in Christ, being with Him, loving Him, worshiping Him, serving Him, accepting His love for you, if you do that, you will learn contentment and you will be content no matter the circumstances.